You are listening to Inclusion Evolution, a bi-weekly podcast that brings you insightful and engaging conversations on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the legal profession, the technology space, the world of sports, and our everyday. Here are your hosts, Lisa Mueller and Michael Kasdan. Welcome back to Inclusion Evolution. I'm Lisa Mueller. And I am Michael Kett. Well, Mike, we're back with yet another episode, and now we're in July. And because we're in July, I thought that in today's episode, we'd take some time to recognize and celebrate Disability Pride Month. Do you know the origin story behind Disability Pride Month? So I didn't until I recently looked it up, but I now know and can share with our listeners that it actually originated uh, not terribly long time ago, but in in 1990, July 26, 1990. um, And that's when President George H.W. Bush uh, signed the Americans with Disability Act into law. uh, And part of that um, each July is now celebrated as Disability Pride Month, uh, which commemorates that moment. And I'm so glad we're going to be spending some time today talking about disabilities and Disability Pride Month, because it's something that's really very important to me personally, as my niece Madison has Down syndrome. And help us talk about this very important topic. We have two special guests with us, Rebecca, who goes by Becky, Faye Smith-Galley, and Rebecca Renzi. But before we dive into our conversation, let's tell you a little bit more about our guests. And I'm going to start off talking about uh, Becky. Uh, She's an author and a columnist who writes about love, loss, and healing. And she really does know about loss. She has survived some significant losses in her life, including her 17-year-old brother who died during a water skiing accident, her son who had a degenerative disease and subsequently died around the age of 15, her daughter's autism her divorce, and then nine days after her divorce was final, she became paralyzed from traverse mellitus, which is a rare spinal cord inflammation that began as the flu. But somehow through all of that, she's fostered an unexpected prolific writing career. In 2000, the Baltimore Sun published her first column about playing soccer with her son from her wheelchair. 400 published columns later, she launched Thoughtful Thursdays, Lessons from a Resilient Heart, a weekly column that shares what's inspired her to stay positive. In addition, she's also the author of the book, Rethinking Possible, a remarkable story about the power of love over loss and the choices we all make that shape our lives, especially when we're forced to confront the unimaginable. Rebecca Rienzi, our second guest, is the executive director of Pathfinders for Autism and has over 25 years of experience in the nonprofit sector. Uh, Rebecca joined Pathfinders for Autism back in 2007 and has served as its executive director since 2010. Prior to joining Pathfinders for Autism, Rebecca's professional experience focused around environmental and social justice issues in Maryland and Baltimore City. Her strengths include community organizing, program development and implementation, volunteer management, partnership building, fundraising, and organization management. And we're going to get into how she's applied all those skills um, to Pathfinders 
Um, Rebecca was instrumental in advocating for the coverage of autism treatment services by health insurance plans sold in Maryland, resulting in the passage of legislation in 2012, which really changed the game on access. Um, she serves on many local and state committees and work groups where she advocates for individuals with autism and their families. Becky and Rebecca, welcome. Lisa and I are very excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thanks, Mike. Really happy to be here. So, Becky, I read your book, Rethinking Possible, not once, but twice, because I was really enamored with it. And I have to say, I was truly blown away by your journey so far in life. Um, your brother, Forrest, who you were very, very close with, died at the age of 17 in a water skiing accident while you were away at UNC at school. And not surprisingly, his death shattered your very, very close family. Um, but despite that grief, uh, you moved forward in your life. You graduated from college, you got married, you had a career, and you started raising a family of your own. And you had four beautiful children, Brittany, Matthew, Madison, and Peter. And then about three months after Matthew was born, he started experiencing some seizures. And ultimately, he developed a degenerative, undiagnosed disease, and he died around the age of 15. And then Madison was diagnosed with autism. And then several years later, you separated from your husband. And then nine days after your divorce was final, uh, you experienced traverse mellitus, which is a very, very rare condition that only about one in 1.34 million people um, experience. And, and that left you paralyzed um, from the waist down. So I wanted to ask you that despite such unspeakable tragedy so far in your life, how did you learn not only to accept and embrace your life, but to do so with such graciousness, strength, and passion, despite all that you've been through? <laughs> well, I will say I'm really glad it all didn't happen one time because yeah. it was a lot. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's... Uh, it has been a lot, uh, but I, and I think I really you know, thought about um, the coping part, how to get how I got through it only after I, I really wrote the book, um, because I just kept handling the next thing, you know, just handling the next thing. And uh, but after I look back, I, I realized that um, I really had a front row seat to watching my mother and dad cope with the loss of my brother, which was huge. Um, he was, you know, that kid, president of the student council, um, you know, an athlete, a um, really stellar uh, student, um, had big dreams. And after an accident, um, he was in a coma nine days and died. And, and they just coped with that in such a way and I really learned a, a few things just from watching them. I mean, they kept moving. Um, they um, also got resources, <clears throat> excuse me, resources uh, that could help them keep moving. I think one of the things I like to say is when you're, you're going through stormy seas, you know, who's in your boat? Who can help you navigate through it? And um, 
they really did a fine job of teaching me how to to look for resources, people that could help you through. So, um, but a lot of it, you know, like Churchill says, when you're going through hell, keep going, and you just um, you have to keep mo- keep yourself motivated to do that. And resources help as well as I really tried to carve out time for restoration of my energy and my mindset. Uh, I watched them cope in very different ways, and I've learned that we we all don't cope the same way. We don't breathe the same way. I'm not sure I could have done it um, without watching them so closely and how they got through a really, really difficult season of life. And they still managed to flourish and love despite that loss. Yeah, I think a lot of parents who lose a child, and, and obviously you know that too, it, it can be extraordinarily stressful and it can devastate your life. And it sounds like not only they, but also you have managed to to continue to, to find that strength and develop a mindset to continue to move on. I thank them daily for that. And the, the other thing is they had, a you know, they still kept a sense of humor about things and a perspective. And I think that you just... Um, these are serious illnesses and serious consequences, but um, there's always a bright side somewhere, you know, and, and I really believe, you know, life can be good no matter what. I've had a lot of what, <laughs> and uh, but, uh, you know, you have to look for the good. It might not be the best. Yeah, and I, I love hearing from people like you and from you just about resilience and about human resilience and trying to to find the magic there because I think there's there's so much um, in in how folks uh, you know go through um, you know these things and you know things like having a sense of humor and things like you know the people and putting one in front of the other and um, no it's just really inspiring. Um, can you tell us a bit about your beautiful daughter Madison and her autism? Sure. Um, she is 31 years old. It's just hard to believe that, that she's that age, but um, she is doing very well. She's in a, a residential program, a day program and a residential program. And she's out in the community almost every single day of the week. She delivers meals on wheels and uh, volunteers uh, through different community programs. She's severely impacted by autism. She can't read or write or ever be left alone. And so she has a a one-on-one that's with her continually to make sure that she can, is safe and, um, and is progressing in her, her programs. And she, she doesn't, she's been in three different, um, through the years, she's been in three different programs, but the, this latest placement, um, is not too far from my house. So I get to see her periodically and have lunch with her. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, I know in 1997, uh, only a few months after you had become paralyzed and returned home from rehab, you came up with the idea for what became Pathfinders for Autism. What was the inspiration behind that idea and why given everything you had going on at the time, not only with yourself, but also with your children, did you decide that the time was right for that organization? Well, you know, it's, um, I, I can't take credit for, for coming up with it. I think the, the real credit goes to, um, 
good friend of mine whose son, Mason, happened to be in Madison's class at school. Her name's Polly Serhoff. Um, and uh, she uh, sent home this, this yellow flyer story, you know, sent home this little yellow flyer in Madison's Barney backpack. And it said, come learn about how Mason is learning how to talk, a new therapy for Mason. And I was shocked. Number one, you know, uh, BJ was a famous uh, Orioles baseball player at the time Cal Ripken was playing and the Orioles were hot. And it was like, wow, I get to go to his house. (laughs) (laughs) But more than that, Madison was five years old and she wasn't talking. So um, I was all ears. Uh, So we went and we learned about this therapy and I tried it with Madison and she was soon being able to say her name and colors and shapes and her address and phone number. Uh, so we were really um, excited about that. But but what was more most interesting, you know, Polly and I realized it wasn't, we didn't get that information for from an educator and we didn't get that information from a doctor. Mm-hmm. We got that information from a fellow parent who share information. And this was before Google and a lot of the internet activity. So you were on your own. You know, like, wow, parent can help a parent that way. You know, maybe there's more that can be done. And so a small group got together who all um, were seeing a, 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 a common doctor, uh, Rebecca Landa. And we all said, you know, what else can we share that would help each other? And that's when we decided, you know, Let's try to form a, a nonprofit where parents can help parents. You know, the happenstance was so incredibly helpful for me. It, I'm sure it'd be helpful for other other families. So that's kind of how it started with that little yellow flyer. Unbelievable. It's a great story. I mean, and I remember BJ Serhoff as a baseball fan. Um, but of course, I never knew this story, and that's unbelievable. And the part that really resonates with me um is that parents helping parents to navigate these things. It's just such a powerful idea. And, you know, there's a nonprofit that I've been on the board of for seven years now called My Child's Cancer, uh, where it's parents helping parents navigate very rare forms of cancer, because it's oftentimes parents, um, you know, who have that information and it's very specific and having that community and helping with that type of information is, I know, really, really powerful. So it's interesting when I, when I was thinking about, you know, what's the most important thing? And it's it, it, that's where we kind of came up with the name Pathfinders, because so many times there were paths out there. We just couldn't find them. And so it wasn't that we were creating a lot of new paths. It was searching for information that was out of there that needed a, a centralized repository of it that, that could be shared easily. And so that's um, that's kind of the origins of that and what we still do today, really. I mean, we we create a few of our own sometimes, but we're really all about finding what's out there as well. And I was curious, Becky, how long from the time you and Polly started talking about, you know, kind of creating this different paths, did it take to get Pathfinders for Autism up and running? And who else assisted the two of you in, in doing that? It took us about three years. We didn't have a lot of experience in that, but we kept finding people that were willing to help. So we had an, a, we found an attorney, um, 
Brian Mund was functioning in the, the presidential role, and there was a nucleus of about five to seven of us that were really working hard to, to figure out what we wanted to do, what our focus areas were going to be, and becoming a, um, a nonprofit. Um, was, there's a lot of work that goes into that. So, and it was interesting. You had asked um, Mike before, like, how was I doing this? you know, based on adjusting to paralysis and all the other things. And I think what it gave me was a a distraction uh, away because at the time when I was paralyzed, there was a pretty much a two thirds chance that I would recover, but I needed to wait. You know, there wasn't anything you could do to, to make me walk again. So meanwhile, <laughs> and this is, what do you do in the meanwhile? Um, you focus on something that you can control a little bit, or at least feel like you're helping somebody else. And, and I felt like it was helping Madison and it was helping the autism community. So it helped me pass the time and feel productive. So Rebecca, I wanted to turn to you and ask how you ultimately became involved with Pathfinders for Autism. I have worked in the nonprofit field my entire professional life, and I was a colleague of, of mine at a, another nonprofit. Um, I, I lived with her uh, through the diagnosis of three of her children um, with the developmental disabilities, two of whom had autism. And so I, I learned a lot. Uh, I was becoming a parent at that time myself, and she and I you know, shared a lot, and I learned a lot about her life experience. Um, she moved on to another position and uh, over here at Pathfinders for Autism. So she worked here uh, for a few years and as the organization uh, expanded and wanted to um, create more program areas, I, uh, she tapped me. That was sort of my expertise program development and, and implementation and sort of community engagement. So I, I, I was invited to apply for the position and, and got the job. So I, I came here without um, a personal, a direct personal, meaning I didn't have a child on the spectrum, um, but I had a close personal friend uh, with the, with the child on the spectrum. And then later on, uh, my, my child was diagnosed with developmental uh, delays and uh, not autism. So I, I learned a lot as a parent here that I was able to use and help my child through the, uh, the IEP process and, 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 and such. So. But it was my professional expertise and experience that, and connections, I guess, that got me here initially. So, Rebecca, I wanted to ask you about the mission of Pathfinders for Autism. And that mission is to support and improve the lives of individuals with autism through expansive, customized programming and by providing resources, training, information, and activities free of charge. Um, and that's quite a mission. It's very, very broad. So can you share with us some of the programs and services you provide and how it helps individuals with autism and their families? Absolutely. So the cornerstone of the organization is the resource center. And that's what Becky spoke about. You know, How do parents access information, accurate information, easily uh, through a centralized uh, place. So as when we started in 2020, as Becky noted, you know, internet was not what it is today. Um, and so we were a call, you know, a call center. People could call in and we would give information uh, about anything. You know, it could be providers in the area, various um, clinicians, where they could get uh, support and parent support groups. But it also could be where to get your child's haircut, you know, someplace that's 
really sensitive and open to, you know, working differently um, than they might work with other clients. Or it could be where to go buy shoes. I mean, anything that could make someone's life easier, parents' life easier, and, and, and ultimately the individual with autism's life easier. Of course, the Resource Center has grown over the 23 years, so we are very robust online. We have a very, um, very dense uh, website that you can read uh, hundreds of articles. You can go through navigation guides throughout the lifespan. Um, but you, we still have a call center. So we still have a helpline um, that's answered by a parent who has the personal experience um, and now a lot of professional experience to help families connect with resources in their community. And again, those resources have continued to grow over the years. So people get to us through the, the phone, through email, through social media, and through our website. And you know, we respond to thousands of you know personalized direct uh, contacts every year. Uh, the Resource Center also has, as I mentioned, we, we publish hundreds of articles, um, and we also have parent workshops. So that's we, you know, we're hosting them in person and virtually now in this virtual world uh, on topics that, you know, again, you name it, we cover it. Uh, again, it could be behavioral therapy, but it also could be financial planning for individuals who may not be able to live independently as they become adults, and it can be potty training. It, it could be a variety of topics. So there's all. All the resource center is really being uh, focused on doing is is helping parents get information that's very helpful to them, um, and giving them the resources and the providers that they can access in their community. Training is another big program that we have, sort of separate from parent workshops where we bring in professionals on the topic. Our training program is when our staff uh, and training teams go out, and it's very focused on uh, first responders. Um, we do a lot with police. Uh, but also fire, EMS, and health professionals. But we also train professionals in all sectors. So we'll have a company might reach out and say, we have individuals on staff with autism and we would like to be able to, to better support them in the workplace. So we'll go train professionals there. We've worked with hospitality staff. We've worked with uh, recreational staff, to, again, to better understand um, autism and how they may work better with their clients or customers. Uh, we have a recreation program. And that recreation program is about uh, breaking down isolation for families and getting the whole family out to experience things in the community like ball games, aquariums, zoos, um, sailing, you name it. We try to do it. Um, we have a safety program, which is around water safety, which provides opportunities for the family to be around water safely with education, as well as sim swim lessons for individuals with autism. Um, unfortunately, drowning is one of the leading causes of death among individuals with autism. So um, it's something that we focus on. And we have also a lot of safety events that bring law enforcement and individuals with disabilities together to improve uh, outcomes uh, when they might be interacting in an emergency situation. So that's to break down the barriers before there's an emergency. And of course, awareness is woven through all of our programs. So everything we do is about building awareness and acceptance of autism in the, in the entire community. So Rebecca, quick question for you. Um, that's a tremendous amount of programming um, and services that you offer. Is it available across the country or is it something more local? It's local. So we serve the state of Maryland. Uh, so everything I've mentioned um, is offered free uh, to the residents of uh, Maryland. Um, that said, our uh, law enforcement uh, training in particular has received national attention. So we do have um, 
we are working with some other uh, departments in other states, but primarily we are Maryland focused. And at this point, um, intend to stay that way as we continue to to meet the needs of of, of those the residents of Maryland. So. Yeah, it's a, it's really an incredibly broad array of services and um, you know resources and training and information and and community and uh, to be able to offer that to folks free of charge is really fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, how are you able to do that in terms of funding it? You know, where where are your what are your sources of funding? Where does it all come from, and how do you how do you do it at that scale? Um, well, we have, uh, uh, we're a very small team, but we're very efficient and we do have, we have, of course, staff that are focused on development, on bringing in uh, funds. And the bulk of our uh, funding comes from private foundations, corporate sponsors and individual donors. Um, and that do that through just direct giving or through grant application or through events that we have. Uh, we do have some federal funding and that is very much focused on the law enforcement training. Um, so we are, our operating budget is just over a million dollars. So we're still relatively small in the, the scheme of nonprofits and we have seven staff. So we're doing a lot with seven people. We have four program staff that are delivering all those programs that I mentioned. And then we have our two uh, development staff that are raising all the funds. And I kind of float around, <laughs> make sure it all keeps going. And also just one follow up. I know you have a referral system for providers. Could you talk a little bit about that and how that works? Sure. So when an individual um, is looking for information or referrals, they can contact the resource center either through the helpline, um, through email, through a, a form on our website, or through uh, social media. We monitor all of the outlets, and they'll come in. They ask whatever question they may have, and we will. Uh, we have a so we have a database of providers um, that we that are for all over the state, and that we use that to. Um, you know, pull the providers from. So if somebody lives in Southern Maryland, they'll let us know where they live, what their zip code is, what their driving radius that they're willing to do. Um, and then we'll, we'll see what's available for them in their community. That's always ideal. Unfortunately, there are there are pockets of the state that have fewer resources than others, as you can imagine. So we'll give them the closest um, option they have available to them. We do not endorse providers, and providers don't pay to be in our in our database. It is it's it's they come to us from our staff's research or what other parents um, share with us, and we'll do a little bit of vetting around. It's just making sure that the services they provide are are for autism or and that they're taking patients. Uh, so the referrals again are not endorsed, and but that's because see, it's very hard to um, everybody has different tastes, and what works for one family might not work for another family. So. So, Rebecca, I wanted to follow up uh, and ask another question. Um, mm -hmm. Given how long the organization has been around, can you share with us some of the accomplishments you've achieved over the last 5, 10, or 15 years? Sure, sure. Um, so I've been with the organization 16 years now, so I, that's my perspective. And I think some of the highlights that I, that you know, really, I think, um, the biggest accomplishments that we've been able to achieve and I think they've had the most impact in the community. Um, there's a lot, but the, the passage of, of legislation that required private carriers to cover autism treatment was a big one. And Becky started this conversation about the yellow flyer and it was talking about a treatment that was so helpful to so many uh, children. And that treatment was not covered by, by the carriers um, insurance uh, plans that were sold in the state of Maryland. They weren't legally required. And so that legally required, that meant they didn't cover it. So there was a multi-year effort 
Pathfinders, you know, led that charge, but we work with a lot of grassroots community members to get that passed. And after, uh, I guess, about four years of going around and around the legislation, we did pass that. So that was huge. That meant that really opened up access to care that many people did not have. And of course, after we got the private carriers to do it, we started working on Medicaid and to make sure that the Medicaid providers were also covering it. So um, that that started in 2012, and we still we're still working to perfect the Medicaid side of things, and it's going to be an ongoing challenge. But the reality is, thousands and thousands of children now can access uh, early intervention services that could not before 2012, and that's a, that's a huge win. Um, the training of law enforcement and medical professionals, I think, is another one that stands out. Uh, we were actually approached in 2012 by the Maryland State Police to help them with training. And then a few years later, training in developmental disabilities became a uh, training mandate for the state. And so with with the relationship that we built and the training mandate, we train thousands of law enforcement officers every year. It's It's our biggest program. It's very demanding, but it's, it's so needed. And we get such positive feedback from the departments we work with. We also, again, I mentioned the medical professionals. Again, they came to us in 2016, noticing a, more and more people coming into ERs or the various departments within the hospital and, and not being able to work with them um, the way they wanted to. And our training is not clinical. We don't, when we go into hospitals, we're not talking about the clinical side. When we work with law enforcement, we're not talking about police procedure. It is practical understanding of what autism is, what are some of the challenges they may encounter when interacting with an individual, and some very um, practical ways that they can de-escalate or, uh, you know, understanding the communication aspect, which tends to be the primary area where issues come into play. If someone is not communicating with a law enforcement officer or hospital personnel the way they expect them to, meaning using words, um, or not looking them in the eye, then things can can go bad fast. So we really focus on the communication differences that, that they might encounter. And then I think just in general, the thousands of people we serve every year, I mean, between 17 to 20,000 people every year through all of our programs. Um, again, seven people, an incredible board and a million dollars, and we're doing quite a bit. So Yeah, that's really fantastic to hear about uh, the successes. And I love the access piece is so important, and I know that's a that's a long game. Um, yeah. So so I, I get I, I get that, but it's really wonderful. Um, I just wanted to also just shift to um, if you would speak a little bit about some of the challenges that the organization is facing, um, and you know one thing that that we speak a lot about on the podcast is allyship. So not only the challenges, but also um, how people who might be listening uh, might be able to help with those challenges. Sure. Well, we're a nonprofit, so the top top challenge is always funding. <laughs> always. And, um, you know, we, right now our current programs are well-funded and it takes a lot to get that funding, but we want to grow. And I think in order for to grow and to continue to grow the way we have uh, in a smart way and an effective way, um, more and more funding is always needed. Um, we can always use volunteers um, to help with some of the uh, programs that we do out in the community. We have great volunteers that come into our office now. We work a lot with a variety of um, um, adult uh, service providers. Um, we have uh, interns and volunteers and paid staff that come in, but we do need help out in the field when we do uh, events like uh, visits to the aquarium and so forth. Um, and, and obviously the past five years has been challenging <laughs> with COVID and 
I think uh, staff, uh, we have an incredible staff and our retention has been been great. Uh, but, you know, we did have some um, contraction during during COVID and we're still not quite, I think, staffed up to the level we need to be. But we're working on that. And that, of course, is tied directly to funding. And then just looking at um, the trends in nonprofit, not just nonprofits, but business in general and, and um, how uh, employees are retained and how employees are recruited. We need to focus on that so that we, uh, again, can, can keep some really quality staff. Uh, again, most of us have been here 10 plus years, so that says something. Um, uh, but looking at the future and, and, and the challenge around succession and things like that are things we're focused on too. Rebecca, for people who may want to help or reach out to you, um, could you share your website with us? Sure. It's pathfindersforautism.org. All spelled out. Great. Thank you. And Becky, I wanted to turn back to you for a second and ask you over the last 20 plus years of Pathfinders for Autism, what are you most proud of? You know, there's so many things as you can see. It's just from a yellow flyer to everything she just described. It's amazing. But I think um, what really I, I feel like we've stayed true to that mission of finding a path for children. And we have also made a, a real effort to create a spectrum of services for a spectrum disorder. And I think that's so important because sometimes what we see about the autism spectrum isn't always reflective of what the, what the autism community is consisting of. And a dedication to provide services at every level for someone like Madison and someone who's very high functioning um, is important uh, because there, there are real needs out there. So that dedication to the spectrum and then just the quality of the staff that we have and their dedication to really keep a pulse on the community. What did the, what does this community need um, in terms of the autism community and the community that the autism community interacts with? Police. One of my favorite slides in this training that we do for ER docs and nurses is your next patient has autism. Are you ready? I mean, and that's where the rubber meets the road, where it's like, are they able to handle this, this uh, individual that's going to express themselves differently? The same thing with um, law enforcement training. Rebecca, talk about that a little bit, where we have the police stop, you know, we, we practice those interactions, right? Yes. So um, our training team for our law enforcement and our hospital, uh, it consists of um, we have our lead trainers, which are typically staff, but they have co-trainers who are individuals with autism or other intellectual developmental disabilities. So it's a training team that goes in um, and there's it's as I mentioned before, it's not it's not about protocol. It's about learning what the what the um, developmental disabilities are and some of the challenges. But then we have interactions. Um, or experiential exercises. So it may be uh, some of our lead trainers might be, uh, some of our co-trainers might be leading that. They might be doing a, a role play scenario um, or we'll do a uh, various activities that, that puts the officer um, in a position where they might not understand what's being asked of them or um, they might understand it, but they're not being allowed to answer it the way they want to. And so it's a, a designed to sort of create a sense of 
anxiety um, and how that affects them and how that and, and that their communication um, has been inhibited and with the idea of saying this may be with somebody um, on the autism spectrum that you're or somebody with a developmental disability that you're you know questioning this might be what they're experiencing so again it's just sort of a role reversal put the you know what is it like to um, be in that person's shoes if only just a little bit for a little bit of time so um, and it's really important to us that we have I mean, our training team is is the fact that it is comprised of individuals on the spectrum and individuals with um, uh, disabilities developmental disabilities is critical that uh, this sometimes is the first interaction that an officer is having with an individual at least that they know that they're having and so they learn a lot we get so much positive feedback from the law enforcement but I think one of the things that is um, incredible is how great our team of co-trainers, some are nonverbal and some are very verbal and they and they do all different components of the training, but they all are adding an incredible, meaningful part to the training. And the officers are, it really breaks down some of the perceptions and, and of an individual who has Down syndrome or an individual with autism can't do something or doesn't have the intelligence. And it, and it completely is, uh, helps to break down that perception too, that and, and really try to reinforce that presumption of intellect. It's a great thing, if I must say to myself. It's, it's fantastic and so well needed. So, Becky, we've spent a large portion of the podcast talking about autism, and we've talked about your daughter, Madison, but I don't want people to forget that you also are disabled. Can you share with us what Disability Pride Month means to you and what you want people to know about being disabled? Well, let's see. Um, I, I think when I think of Disability Pride Month, it's it's really a pause for me and a chance to kind of get out of my own world of dealing with, I call it my two-year-old. You know, my, my body from my waist down behaves like a two-year-old. And it's, sometimes I can predict it and sometimes I can't. Sometimes it's behaving, sometimes it's not. But when you look at the broader community of uh, disability, it's a chance to really learn and discover how other people, you know, how they're affected, but also how they cope. And it's a really, it's a good time to learn and to see how people are, are doing things differently. And so I, I look forward to that, to being able to, to kind of grow in that period. And I think that in terms of what I would, you know, I can't speak for the disability community, but for, for me, I, I always welcome support and encouragement and anyone that has creative, um, problem solving abilities, because it seems like that's what my life is, is you know, just when you think you've got it under control, the two-year-old misbehaves or the environment changes. And, oh, yeah, by the way, there's aging. And so <laughs> you've got to really all the time be aware and, and keep this coping mindset. And so I'm, I'm all ears for that kind of thing. Thank you both so much uh, for coming on. Um, so this is really great to speak to both of you and to learn about um, about you know, this incredible work. That's all the time we have for this week's episode. So we will wrap it up. Um, and Lisa and I will catch you next time on Inclusion Evolution. 
thank you for listening to Inclusion Evolution. The views expressed during this podcast are solely those of the hosts and not of their respective law firms. Share your thoughts with us by emailing us at llmuller at casimerjones.com or mkasden at wigan.com. 